0: Section 9 of Sunbeams by George W. Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE HEN IN POLITICS No person, not an expert at reading character, could look in the face of the common barnyard hen and say that she was possessed of great brain, or that she had a mind that grasped great problems. The hen has always been looked upon as the feathered Mormon wife, contented to see her husband go around mashing other hens and never making any trouble. The husband of the hen has never been called to account for his misdeeds, never has had the charge of conduct unbecoming a rooster made against him. Knowing him to be untrue to her, she has gone clucking about, laying eggs when they were cheap and striking when eggs were dear, at the apparent behest of a walking delegate. She has never gone into the courts to secure a separation and alimony, but has borne her burden and smiled in the face of trouble, apparently not caring whether her rooster flirted with other hens or went to Congress. On account of the chickens who were growing up, whose lives would be embittered, by the knowledge of scandal in the household, the hen has kept silent, though her gizzard pained her, and she has always been cheerful, digging worms for the lazy rooster to get fat on, and laying eggs for him to cackle over and make believe he had laid. The hen has never even looked reproachful at her polygamous consort, though he has carried on his flirtations under her very eyes, and in the presence of the chickens, but has turned her back on them and chased grasshoppers, seeming not to notice what was going on, though a sad sigh would occasionally escape her. She has seemed to have confidence that when old age came to the rooster and he had found that there was no pleasure in the chase after strange pullets, he would come back to her and settle down and let her support him. But it was always her luck to have her rooster when he got old enough to know better, killed for a boarding-house stew, and after a period of mourning she would find another rooster who would promise to be good to her, with the same result, broken promises, scandal, and heart-burning. The hen has always been looked upon as a chump, but within the last four months the hens of this country have done something that great political parties have failed to do. That organized labor has not succeeded in doing, and she has set the pace that will bring to her banner the bone and sinew of the land, and cause a monument to be erected to her memory. She has broken up a trust, and sent the conspirators to begging for mercy. A year ago or less, the Packers, the Armors, the Swifts, and the others, decided to buy up all the eggs in the country when they were cheap and plenty, put them in cold storage, and when winter came and the hens refused to lay, they would raise the price of eggs to fifty cents a dozen and prey upon the wealth of the housewife. The plan was well considered, and all the eggs were stored, and the rich packers went off to the winter resorts in warm climates and waited for the rise in eggs. It is said the packers even went so far as to let Rockefeller in the deal on the ground floor. Along about Thanksgiving and Christmas, to the consternation of the packers, fresh eggs were plenty, and there was no call for the decayed eggs in cold storage, and it was found that the hens were doing business at the old stand, laying eggs faster than ever. In January, the hens even worked harder and night and day they filled the nest with eggs, while the packers perspired blood. The hens just winked and said nothing but laid eggs. The packers came back from their winter resorts in consternation to head off the hens. The only way to save their cold storage eggs was to stop the hens, so they issued orders to their agents To buy all the poultry in the country and kill and dress it and boil it and can it for the market. The farmers sold their poultry at a big price, all except the old hens that were laying eggs, and so the packers were beaten again, and failure stares many a rich man in the face owing to his being long on cold storage eggs. The lecture season is nearly over and the demand for cold eggs is limited, and the hens are still at work. It is said that Rockefeller is indignant at the packers who have sold him this cold storage gold brick, as this is the first speculation he ever went into that failed, and it is believed that he has raised the price of kerosene in order to get even on the egg deal. The question that bothers scientists and students of political economy is how in the world the supposedly unintelligent hen could have known anything of supply and demand, and known that, by taking no vacation, but laying eggs all through the winter to beat the band, she could break up as soulless a monopoly as ever scuttled a ship or filled a soldier with embalmed beef. It is evident to all that some power greater than any ever known in the history of hen fruit has had a controlling influence on the hens of this country during the last few months and has helped her to assist the Democrats in downing the trusts. If the hen can only develop a capacity for producing kerosene oil, she may help to make Rockefeller feel like 30 cents and if she ever does to get laying cigarettes, the tobacco trust will get it in the neck. Let us erect a monument to the hen, the first to make a trust wish it had subsidized her before it tried to corner eggs. Dreyfus and Embalmed Beef Well, I tell you, said the old kicker, after listening to the talk of the seven-up players on the suburban train, about boycotting France on account of the decision in the Dreyfus case. You don't want to go off half-cocked in this business. These army trials are notorious for making decisions about as the general staff wants them made. Now you take that embalmed beef trial, for instance. Ah, go on now, said the man who had just made high, low, jack, and was counting the game. That beef trial was no comparison. The only thing was that if the beef had been condemned by the trial board, it would have advertised to the world that our packers were on the make and would sell any old dead thing if they could get it sealed up in a can before it exploded. Whose deal is it? That's what I say, said the old kicker. That board was organized to acquit, the same as the French board was organized to convict. If the beef was found to have been bad, the general staff, with such a general staff, would be canned and roasted. And the fellows who sold the beef would have been sent to Devil's Island, unless they put up lots of money. Now, France and every other country watched the beef trial and expected a conviction. And when the verdict came in, showing that the stinking meat that nauseated and killed the best soldiers in the world was as pure as baking powder, The people abroad thought strongly of boycotting America for putting up such a job to save the necks of conspirators against the men behind the guns. Go slow, boys, about boycotting France on champagne and pâté de foie gras. Oh, here you are all wrong, said the man who only had one trump and played it the first hand. Don't you remember they had some of the beef at the trial? "'and everybody tasted of it and said it was good?' "'Sure,' said the old kicker. "'They made up a lot on purpose, "'same as the green goods men have samples of genuine greenbacks "'to show to the jays who buy sawdust. "'Officers who were expected to do so "'testified that the beef was good enough, "'but officers who were there to tell the truth "'said it was vile, embalmed, and slimy.' and common soldiers said it was worse than grave robbery. Roosevelt said the meat was awful, and yet a can of nice perfumed beef was sent to Alger, and he put some on a cracker and gave it to the President, and they both said it was so good they ordered some for their private tables, and the trial board took that kind of testimony and acquitted the conspirators. They wanted to say the honor of the army, the same as the court at Wren did. Oh, you can't fool me, and the old kicker stamped his feet and acted as though it was a personal matter with him. Yes, but didn't the President get rid of Alger and send him back to Michigan with a flea in his ear? said the man, whose next deal it was. Didn't he show that he wouldn't have any man in his cabinet that would allow the soldiers to be fed on such stuff? And didn't they fire Egan? What for? said the old kicker. As he pounded the palm of his left hand with his right fist, if the beef was good, as it was demonstrated to be by the verdict of the court martial, what did he fire Alger for? The court martial vindicated Alger and the beef, as it was appointed to do. The Alger end of the beef was all right, wasn't it? Then why did they fire Alger and destroy all the embalmed beef on hand in Cuba and Puerto Rico if it was good? and tell the packers they were vindicated, but they must not do it again. Probably there were extenuating circumstances, same as the French court said there was in the Dreyfus alleged treason. If the verdict of the beef court was right, Alger should be the logical candidate for president, and the beef that was so good should have been ordered back to this country and fed out to the White House guests at a reception for an object lesson, and Miles, the wicked man who did so much damage to the pious pork-packers by his beef report, after they had been of so much financial assistance to the campaign, should have been sent to report to the Sultan of Sulu as a prisoner of war. Say, just to try you fellows, I have a can of embalmed roast beef in the baggage car that I have been keeping ever since my nephew brought it back from Cuba and I am going to open it right here on this board you are playing cards on with this can-opener. Porter, get the tongs and bring in that green tin can in the corner of the baggage car. And the old kicker took a can-opener out of his pocket, and the porter started for the can. You confounded old scavenger, said the man who had defended the army beef as the porter came in with the can. His nose turned up at an acute angle. You open up that can in this car and you die. You don't know that the President of the State Board of Health is in the next car. I will call him if you stab that can with your can opener. I am willing to admit anything and will not boycott France if you will let up on that can. Well, all right, said the old kicker. I just wanted to argue, that's all. There is nothing in the can anyway i just carry it to paralyze fellows who say the embalmed beef given the soldiers was all right. I have never found an apologist of that beef that has had sand enough to remain quiet while a case of the remains was being opened. They can all smell it, four cars ahead. And the old kicker prepared to leave the car and get his can checked at the depot so he could use it when he went out again at night if they got to arguing on an embalmed beef. THE DEADLY PISTOL POCKET A judge in Texas has found it necessary to warn juries to be careful of the claim of self-defense so often made in murder cases, the claim that the deceased put his hand behind him, and of course was shot, on the theory that he was going to draw a pistol. There were so many claims of self-defense that the judge feared the habit was growing on people, that of shooting at a man because he reached around behind him. The judge is right in calling attention to this thing, because many people put their hands behind them who never carried a weapon, and never thought of having a quarrel with anybody. This is particularly the case with northern people, who often carry a handkerchief in the pocket known as the pistol pocket. And it is small consolation to a man, after he has been killed and buried, and the man who shot him has been acquitted, to be told that he never ought to have reached around behind him, though he could prove by a thousand people at home that he always carried his handkerchief in his pistol pocket, and always drew it in an altercation in order to weep properly. Some men in the East, in the temperance districts of Maine, carry small flasks in their pistol pockets, properly covered with an orthodox coattail, and these men are far from being fighters. Suppose such a man should visit a locality, on business, where the citizens shoot too recklessly, and on too slight provocation, and should get into a political argument, or any sort of argument of a heated nature, and should notice that his opponent was becoming excited, and should suddenly remember his flask, and think he could bring the argument to a better understanding by offering the gentleman he was talking with a drink of old New England rum, and should reach for it. He would be taking his life in his hands. Before he had got the flap of his orthodox coat tail raised up sufficient to get his hand hold of the flask, The soft-nosed bullets of the gentleman he had fluid designs upon might begin to enter his bosom. And when he fell and was breathing his last, the hand might produce the flask. The shooter, when he saw the flask, would realize that he had made the mistake of his life, and that the dead man was only trying to produce an argument that all could agree was sound. But it would be everlastingly too late and he would have to go into court and make the claim of self-defense while the remains would be shipped home C.O.D. The pockets in the basement of Trousers have caused trouble enough. Those pockets were never needed and were originally put in during a temperance revival and fostered by the workings of the main Liquor Law as being a sort of cold storage for illegal beverages far away from the maddening throng for nobody would think of looking for the illicit stuff. For many years only a few hip pockets were made, and those who had them in their trousers were exempt from the suspicion that they were walking bars, however much their breath might give them away. The first discovery of the new hip pockets by others than the wearers was by a St. Albans woman who was searching her husband's trousers for money while he slept and when she found a flask full of budge, she screamed and fainted away, and the husband was caught and punished. The hip pocket must go, if we are to mingle much in the east and west. Out on the frontier, the prejudice against men who reach under their coat tails is just as great as it is in other localities where quick gun action is the rule. Even boys know better than to carry their marbles in hip pockets, but the tenderfoot is not posted, and he dies in his tracks. The hip pocket must be abolished, or our people must learn to explain beforehand to those around them that there is no occasion for rashness as they are only about to reach around under their coat tails to get a notebook or a handkerchief. There might be a custom established of ringing a bell to give warning when one is about to reach behind, or a man might sing a peace song before doing so, which would give the Western fighting man notice that nothing sanguinary was about to happen when the fatal movement was about to be made. It is a question whether the national government or the states should establish a code of signals that will protect the citizen who is not reaching for a gun when he lifts his coattail. But one or the other should take action, some day an eminent political speaker will make the mistake of drawing some document from his pistol pocket to read to an assembled multitude, and he will have the concentrated fire of a large audience turned upon him. And then the country will awake to the dangers of the hip pocket. Until that time, the killing will go on, and self defense will be the excuse. End of section nine. Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.